The book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 5. In the previous chapters, we were introduced to the, the fact that we are called to enter into the rest of God and that we have Jesus as our high priest who understands our condition and everything that we go through and is making this way for us. So chapter 5 starts, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes to this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he, also, as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're comparing the high priest under the Levitical order, under the house of Aaron, to Jesus in the priesthood, a new priesthood, which is introduced in in the most robust way in the Bible right here, uh, the order of Melchizedek. And the author points out that um, the the high priest doesn't appoint himself. He's born into a role and he's then he's he's born into a family and then he's placed into that role. If you're a true high priest, you must be established as that by God for whom you are a priest of. And so God established the line of Aaron, and he established the different sons of Aaron as priests. Well, here in the same way, Jesus was established as high priest. And even it's interesting to go back and look at his baptism with John. Um, God says to him, this is in all three Gospels that cover it, uh, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration in all three Gospels, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, do what he says. You see an establishment there. And the author references uh, two highly messianic psalms that would have been understood to be messianic psalms, uh, you know, from the beginning. Uh, psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which, again, both very important psalms, which establish this coming Messiah and who he will be. And so Paul's reminding the reader that this is who we've always known, this, this Jewish reader who is being persecuted. And so many are going back to Orthodox Judaism and giving up Christ, giving up the Messiah. He says, you're giving up everything. The whole of the Tanakh, the whole of the Old Testament points towards this Messiah. And here he is. Now, what is this order of Melchizedek? Well, this is obviously an important topic. It's covered in Genesis. I think it's somewhere around Genesis 14. I'd encourage you to spend time with the Lord in Genesis, in Psalm 110, which is one of the most important Psalms. I mean, it's talking about God's plan in a very short Psalm. We can see here's God's plan, and it's referenced. I know I've brought it up many times because it's referenced by Jesus, it's referenced by Paul, it's referenced by Peter, it's referenced by this author of Hebrews, if, if uh, we want to distinguish him from Paul. Um, clearly a very important psalm 
where because in a few words it describes God's plan. And part of that plan is this order of Melchizedek. And so here Paul's going to spend the next couple chapters talking about what this is. And he's already introduced the fact that the Levitical priesthood and the order of Aaron was a type and a shadow from which we can learn a lot about this coming order of Melchizedek. And if the church up until now has not had much to say, well, quite clearly the fullness of this reality has not been revealed to the church. And yet it's clearly demonstrated as being essentially important. And so in our day, in the coming years, decades, uh, however long we have, this order is going to come to its fullness. And the, the more of the nature and way of God in man will be revealed through this order of which Jesus is the high priest. Seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So verse 7 is saying that Jesus made this way possible for us by his life in the flesh and his prayers for us as he was established as high priest. He prayed to the Father that we would be relieved from death. And he was the first of many to be relieved of, uh, of eternal death. He, he had to suffer it. He had to go to Hades and retrieve the keys from the usurper. And he became king. He was established on the throne. So he tasted de- that death for us and made it so that we do not have to experience that death. And again, we're told, although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So he learned to obey God by the discipline of his life. So obviously, this doesn't mean death on a cross, right? At that point, he's past the point of obedience at that point. Um, Although he was obedient to the heart of God in um, praying for others while he was on the cross, that's not what's what's uh, intended here. His suffering, again, as we said, I think yesterday or the day before, it's this discipline, this discipleship of God, from God, into God's likeness and character. This is the obedience that he suffered, walking in this way, not in the way of the world, which was always around him and always tempting him to go as the world goes, just as we always face this temptation. And so after he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So as we walk in his ways, obeying just as he obeyed, then we receive eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, after this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, sorry, bad enunciation there. 
You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's saying that there are levels of teaching, levels of ways of living within the reality of Christ. He says, you all are Christians, but you still don't know the basics. And so I, it's, I can't even really tell you the deeper things of the Lord because you, you're not there yet. You're still a baby. And we saw this often, this, this uh, talk of milk versus solid food is often uh, mentioned in the epistles. Uh, it was clear that they would go around and first they would have, you know, a baby needs milk first. You can't give a baby that's born a steak. They cannot handle it. Uh, they need milk. And then eventually they can eat uh, more difficult foods. Well, he says the same exact thing is true in the kingdom that we must know the basics first. And once we become established in those things, then we can re- receive. We can always understand the words. The words are always English. You can always, you know, learn a new English word. And it doesn't take words that are too difficult. So everyone can understand the language. But to appropriate the reality, the spiritual reality from what you're hearing takes an establishment in the Lord, which comes by living, not by hearing words. That may be the way you receive the word but then you must become established in the spiritual reality of the thing. And he says to his listeners here, or his readers, you are not yet there. And he's going to go over that a little bit in the next chapter. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the power of discernment. So this is important. He says, what's one of the things that makes someone mature? Having the power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So apparently it's not so necessarily easy to know good from evil, but it takes discernment from the Lord and constant practice growing in the Lord to even see the difference between good and evil, because evil always puts on its face like it's good. Uh, Lucifer means bringer of light. He's constantly trying to um, present himself as the Lord so that we worship him when he is in fact a deceiver, he's a liar. And so having the power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil is a part of growing in maturity. And then we're on to chapter six. He's about to lay out the, uh, I think it's six elementary doctrines. And each one of those could be a long form teaching. So we're just going to quickly go over them because that's what he does here. And that's what we're doing in this Bible study. Uh, but but each one, obviously, if, if Paul's just rattling off some of the basics that these people don't know, obviously, you could memorize the sentence and not know these things. They had heard all these things before, but they were not living them. They did not fully grasp what these things were. And so they, they hadn't come into maturity. So he says, verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. 
and this we will do if God permits. Okay, so very quickly going over those six things. Repentance from dead works. So repenting, turning away, we talked about before, uh, the word repentance in the two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, one means turning around and one means changing your mind. So turning around and changing your mind from the worldly way of living and thinking and feeling and doing to God's way. That is repenting from dead works and a faith towards God, believing that God will bring us into this new reality believing in him for everything in life, both in this world and in the world to come. We've talked before about the layers and layers of faith it takes to see and enter and finally inherit the kingdom. Um, It's more than just believing Jesus is the Christ. It's about following in faith that he would raise us up into his family, into his living way. And instructions about washings or baptisms. So he's here. It's obviously plural. We've talked before. There's three baptisms talked about in the scriptures. Uh, baptism by water, baptism by fire, baptism. Uh, whoops, I missed uh, baptism of the spirit. It's usually in between those two. So uh, water, salvation, the spirit uh, is obviously the spirit. It leads to gifts. It leads to uh, counsel by the Lord. It leads to instruction and growing in the Lord. Fire also leads to growing in the Lord. We just talked about Jesus, uh, becoming obedient through that which he suffered, becoming mature through that which he suffered. That's, that's the fire, which is the realities of life brought on by the father, to help us to grow and become more pure. Just as gold has dross removed from it so it becomes pure, he uses these things to grow us. The laying on of hands. God wants to establish us as priests, as a family, where each one is important. And so the laying on of hands is important to transfer blessing, gifts, authority, Power, anointing, orders. He he uses us, each other, in order to bless, to grow, to send each other. That's one of the horrible things that the uh, Protestants did when they gave up. And, and you know, a bad thing about what the uh, the traditional church, uh, which in the West was the Roman Catholic Church, and and I know less about the Orthodox Church, but. Uh, one of the bad things is they had a very separate, there was this idea that you you had to follow certain religious ways in order to grow mature in God. And they, separ- they had a separate priesthood for this. Now, the idea of a priesthood we just talked about, it's very biblical. It's very real. Um, so I'm not saying that that's bad, but but it became to be practiced in a very earthly religious way. And so one of the things that they they continue to do is laying on of hands. And yet the Protestants tended to throw that out. But clearly that is a basic of the faith that should not be thrown out. The resurrection of the dead that we for one, that we are to come from death to life in this life, that we are to die to our mortal, our flesh, our mortal reality, our old ways of life, 
and to be born again into his new life. That yes, there is a a final resurrection into an eternal body down the road, but more than that, that we are to take on that eternity in the here and now. And finally, eternal judgment, that we will stand before God to be judged on everything that we did and did not do in this world, and that everyone falls short of the glory of God except for Jesus. And that to the degree in which we are living our life in Jesus, uh, we will be blessed and told, you know, good job, my, my faithful servant. The degree to which we have lived for ourselves and for the world, we will face the incredible uh, agony of judgment for a life poorly lived. And it's not a black and white thing. It's a sliding scale of how much of our life did we give the Lord and how much of our life did we live for the world, for ourselves. And only that part of us that live for him is the eternal part that makes it through. The rest of us dies a horrible death. So when Paul says in elsewhere, you know, I I judge myself every day, um, he's preparing himself that He's living in the fullness of eternity now, that there's nothing left to judge by the Father on this day of judgment. And this is also how we should live. And then the author says, okay, well, we're going to talk about or at least allude to deeper things as we move forward. Four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to be up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So he's listing thing he's listing quite a bit more than your average uh, current day Christian experience. He's saying for those who have been enlightened tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come. So, you know, this is, um, to me, this reads as being quite advanced, truly knowing the Lord and then having fallen away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance because they've known the Lord. And yet, if they fall away at that point, they are in complete rebellion. And then they are crucifying once again the Son of God. So they're saying, I knew the Lord. I was fully in him. You come to a point, if you're truly following the Lord, where you, you, the Lord will take you through difficulties. And as you go through them, man, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to go forward. But you look back and you say, well, I can't go back. <laughs> Where am I going to go? And, and so you, it, it's, uh, it's just a point of release of saying, God, I'm all yours. You've taken me this far and I feel stuck. I feel in agony. I feel, you know, this is difficult. And yet I can't go back to what I was. I'm yours now. So <laughs> take me wherever you're going to take me, Lord. And so he says, it, 
if you come to this point and you do rebel, you do turn back, well, there's no coming back to the Lord. You're trying to crucify him yourself just for your own purposes. You're holding Jesus in contempt for your own waywardness rather than understanding the gift that he has already given you. And he compares us to land. This imagery is important throughout the Bible. We see it in uh, just a couple off the top of my head, uh, Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were given the garden and then they rebelled from it. We have the promised land where first Abraham was the first to be given the land and then the people that came out of slavery and out of the wilderness were then given the promised land, which they had to to go through the motions of fighting for. Uh, we see it uh, spoken of prophetically in, in Isaiah, I think it's 5, where he talks about the vineyard. Um, and we, we see just a, a short glimpse of this. He says, land that receives the blessing of rain from God and produces crops is a blessing unto God. But that which does, that receives that rain and doesn't, it produces thorns, it's to be cursed. It is, it is useless. It's to be burned. And so he's likening people that turn away from the goodness of God, fully knowing God. And I, I, again, I would say that's different. There's going to be a great falling away today. And um, for some of those, that this will apply. For others, I think they never truly knew the Lord. They were just going through religious motions because that's what they thought they were supposed to do. And one day it felt empty. Well, good. They should be separated. And then they have the opportunity to truly come in to know the Lord, which is an entirely different experience than simply having a religion. And so I don't think this applies to them because I believe some of them will come to know the Lord for the, for the first time. My own experience is somewhat similar to that. I grew up going to church and uh, I, I thought I knew what it was all about because I did it all the time. And then I, you know, turned away. And so then when I came to the Lord, and when I first started investigating spiritual things and started becoming interested, I I wasn't interested in Christianity at all because I thought I knew it. But then once the Lord grabbed hold of me, well, I actually knew nothing. I just knew a religion. And so then the Lord began to open up a new reality to me. Very slowly, that's a long story, but um, there's many people who believe they know the Lord. They believe they know what Christianity is because they lived in churchianity. And there will be a great, well, there already has been a great falling away. There will be a continued acceleration of the falling away. But that is a good thing, that there be a clear distinction between those who are in the Lord and those who are simply in a religion And then those who are outside will see the shining light of those who are inside. And some will become hungry to come into that light. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, look, I've given you a stern warning, but we don't believe you are the one to be thrown out because you have been living for the Lord. God knows this and he will give you the strength to continue on in him and grow mighty in him. 
Be filled with hope that although you go through difficulties, greater things are ahead for you. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises that you may also inherit these promises. 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So previously in this book, uh, he brought up angels and then Moses, and now he brings up Abraham as to be showing how all these realities within the Tanakh, within the law of Moses and the prophets, all point towards this coming Messiah of which Jesus is. And he said this promise was made to Abraham and, and realize how similar this is to the promise made to Adam. I will bless you and multiply you. Be fruitful and multiply, right? It's the same promise. God's plan has never changed. It's simply, can't, where can he find a people that will live this plan? And Abraham was a man of great faith, and he wandered waiting on the Lord, and he obtained the promise. And God made a promise to Abraham, and he swore it upon himself. For God cannot lie, so both he that made the promise and the promise itself show the eternity of what it was promised to Abraham. And, and he says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the help, sorry, to the hope set before us. So even through great difficulty, this promise has always been before us. And so just as Abraham struggled through great difficulty for the promise set before him, just as Jesus did that, we also can each do that. And he will give us strength to do that, just as he has those that came before. And this is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. We anchor ourselves on eternity, not on the world. He says it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So here he refers to both the tabernacle and the temple had this holy of holies behind the curtain. He says, Jesus has gone forever as a forerunner, as a firstborn of many sons on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever, he's gone behind the veil into the inner deep secrets of God and the ways of God that he can be our high priest after this order of Melchizedek to bring us into the fullness of God's reality, his kingdom, his living way, his family. And we will stop there today. God bless you.